And you know what that music means. It's time for another episode of This Show Is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. Welcome back. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Please find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, or on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you'll find me rather easily. Would love to chat with you, uh, hear a little bit about your thoughts on the show, anything else you'd like to talk about, and just see what happens. Uh, welcome to show, or episode, I should say, number 49 for December 13th, 2021. And today's a little bit of a different spin. I'm actually doing a follow-up show to last week's show because I got some really great questions in particular about Pearl Harbor and my discussion about the 80th anniversary of the attacks last week. And so because of that, I am titling this week's episode, A History Nerds Q&A. <laughs> Hopefully it won't just be for history nerds, though. Hopefully, uh, even if history's not so much your thing, you'll find, uh, you'll find this interesting. Uh, the haiku for today goes like this. Investigating further into past events shines light on today. Investigating further into past events shines light on today. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, I had a lot of uh, questions come in uh, about the last episode of the show talking about Pearl Harbor. And I'm so excited uh, to talk about some of those and share them with you on the air. But before we do that, I want to make sure I uh, thank the sponsor for this show. Once again, Airway Science for Kids which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathways for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do that through a combination of programs that they do in-house and also virtually around the basics of education and aerospace, but also through a whole other uh, series of facilitations of relationships with corporations, with government entities, with uh, educational institutions and the like to help individual students improve their own individual lives, that of their families, and that of their communities as they pursue a life and career in aerospace. They do amazing work down there, and if you'd like to know more about them, you can check out their website at airside.org, that's A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly uh, by emailing info at airsci.org. All right, so I'm, I'm excited to, well, to talk more about a history subject is is always exciting for me, but uh, picking up from last week, as I said, this is a rare follow-up discussion to last week because I got a lot of questions via email and uh, direct message and things like that from various places around this country asking questions about uh, or further elaboration on the attack on Pearl Harbor, which we celebrated or commemorated, I should say, the 80th anniversary of last Tuesday, and last show was the day before that. So, I'm going to share some of these questions with you on the air and my answers, but also I'm going to do something new. Um, a friend of mine recommended that I start opening up the phone lines a little bit more. So if you're listening live to this today on 1150 AM KKNW, uh, you can go ahead and call in if you have a question about last week's show or about this week's show, and you can call 425-373-5527. That's 425-373-5527. So feel free to call in and uh, we can get you on the air. Okay, so uh, with that in mind, let's jump right into it. Uh, question one came in via email after the show last week from Gary in Lake Tahoe, California. And this is what he asked, quote, can you go into further detail into the timing of the Pearl Harbor attack, especially what went on in Washington, D.C.? I've heard that the Japanese did not really intend for the attack to be a surprise. Is that true? 
And didn't the Japanese admiral who planned the attack not really want to go to war with the U.S.? Is that not talked about a lot? Well, that's and Gary, thank you for getting four questions into one. That's awesome. Uh, but I'll I'll hit those uh, in order. Uh, yeah, it was. Did the Japanese intend for this to be a surprise attack? Uh, I'm going to give you a classical historian's answer and say sort of yes, sort of no. Sort of yes in the sense that they did not want the Americans to know the attack was coming, of course. Why would they announce that in advance? But they did not intend for it to go over as it did. The, uh, as I mentioned last week, when Japan was going to break off diplomatic relations with the United States, uh, the plan was to give that announcement to the American government, and then 30 minutes later, the attack would start. So the idea was the United States government would have been informed that Japan was breaking off relations, which meant war was coming. And then 30 minutes right behind that, the attack would start. That would not be enough time for the government to alert every single military installation in the country and in, throughout the world about this development. So that was the idea. But in a classic example of what happens when little small things can trigger big things, this didn't go the way the Japanese wanted at the Japanese embassy in Washington, the person who normally took in the uh, encrypted messages from Tokyo, translated them out of code into Japanese and then translated them into English, had a deadline of 1 p.m. Washington time, actually had to finish at 12.30 Washington time, to make that half-hour window. In one of those interesting twists of fate, that person who normally did that for the Japanese embassy was sick that day. And the person who filled in this person was much slower and the process was delayed almost two hours and so by the time the Japanese delegation arrived to talk to the Secretary of State Cordell Hull the attack had already started was already underway and from Cordell Hull's point of view here are the Japanese showing up two hours into the attack saying oh by the way we're breaking off diplomatic relations that was not good optics by any stretch of the imagination for the Japanese and so that was part of it um, and so it's just one of those interesting little stories. Um, and yes, this was in Washington, D.C., by the way. Right. I was just asked this by my producer in Washington, D.C. Yes. Uh, now, did the other question you had, um, did the Japanese admiral who planned the attack really not want to fight the U.S.? You're talking about Isoroku Yamamoto who planned the attack. And again, it's sort of a yes and no. Uh Yamamoto had uh, spent time in the United States. He'd been the, mil the naval attache for the Japanese Navy in Washington for a period. He had studied, uh, I believe, at Harvard. Uh, Might have been Yale uh, for quite some time. I can't remember off the top of my head. And so he knew the United States fairly well, certainly better than a lot of officers in the Japanese military. And he was very skeptical that Japan could win a very prolonged war with the United States. But, of course, being the highest-ranking admiral in, uh, in Japan, when he was asked to facilitate an attack on the United States to start a war, he figured the best way to give Japan the chance to win a short war would be to knock out the Pacific fleet right at the beginning of the war itself and make it so much more difficult for the United States to come back from that. He thought that was the only way it was going to happen. And so he was actually disappointed in how the Pearl Harbor attack went because it didn't go uh, quite so far enough. Uh, so with that in mind, okay, the, uh, is that talked about a lot? Uh, yes, it is. It is. Most, most accounts of Pearl Harbor that talk about Yamamoto have that in there, that he had an awareness that a long war against uh, the United States was not going to go well. 
So it is out there in um, a lot of the literature. All right. So with that in mind, let's get on to question two. Okay, and question two comes from Carl in Bellingham, Washington, just to the north of here. He wanted to know, after last week's, last week's show, how real was the threat posed to the American West Coast by the Japanese? I'd mentioned that, that there was a lot of panic on the West Coast after Pearl Harbor. And he said, continued, you mentioned a lot of hysteria in the press, but weren't there a few instances where Japanese ships or planes fired on the West Coast? Okay. Well, to get to that, first of all, my point in talking about that last week was in the context of the first week of the attack, when there were no such attacks on the West Coast, but there were reports after reports in the press and elsewhere of impending ones. Remember, the Japanese fleet, nobody knew where it was, and so there was this concern it was going to pop up off the coast of San Francisco or San Diego or the Panama Canal. Uh, and so there was kind of a panic there. Now, uh, there were always, for the rest of the war, there were always reported sightings of Japanese ships, usually submarines or maybe the occasional plane or something like that, um, off of the various West Coast ports. Uh, but almost all of them uh, turned out not to be true. And we know now from records captured in Japan at the end of the war that a lot of the supposed sightings of ships, and particularly submarines, you know, off the West Coast during the war just simply didn't happen. Uh, Japanese naval records show that there were no, usually no submarines out here. But... There were, to address your question, there were a couple of attacks on the West Coast. None of them significant. Um, all three of them happened off the Oregon coast, as a matter of fact, in 1942. The first was on June 21st, 1942, when a Japanese submarine surfaced and shelled Fort Stevens, a coastal defense installation in northwest Oregon. Uh, they fired like 17 projectiles. They all fell harmlessly around the installation. But when the attack was reported in the New York Times two days later on the front page, it created quite the sensation uh, in uh, the United States. And this was all happening at the time where on the east coast of the United States, German U-boats were sinking American ships coming out of harbor on a daily basis. And so it, it pitched into this idea in 1942 that the United States might be under siege in both oceans off of its coast in that period of time. Uh, but that only happened one time there. And then two other times, within a week of each other in September of 1942, a Japanese seaplane launched from a submarine tried to start forest fires in southern Oregon with incendiary bombs. The idea was that if you set the forests on fire, it could cause a whole lot of problems and it would terrify the American public, that type of thing. Well, the bombs were dropped and the plane escaped and so did the submarine, but the fires never really started. And so those were really the, the extent of the attacks. The other side of this, though, is that attacks like that and then rumors of it led to full blackout conditions being followed along the West Coast for the majority of the war, meaning at night, every single building that could be seen from the, sea, uh, from the ocean and oftentimes from the air just turned their lights off so that Japanese ships or planes could not conduct reconnaissance uh, during the evening. It uh, didn't happen too often. Then later in the war, the Japanese began a campaign of using uh, weather balloons to hold explosives that they would release from Japan into the jet stream that would float all the way across the Pacific into the American, North American interior, and steadily as they lost altitude, they would fall to the ground and explode. And a few of those did make it to, the, make it to North America and explode, and every once in a while you'll hear in the news about somebody finding one uh, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Montana or you know, uh, Alberta <laughs> in Canada or, or whatever. So there were a few of those, uh, but that was about the extent of it. So... The fear of what the Japanese could do was always a lot more prominent during the war than what the Japanese actually did do. And so that's keep in mind. And of course, at the time, that was not known. We've known that since then. 
says a lot about the power of fear and the imagination in the middle of a war, because, of course, we have the benefit now of hindsight. Okay, this one I'm really excited about. Question three is from Carl and his son Micah in all they said was the Atlanta area uh, of Georgia. And they said this, uh, Carl wrote this, quote, my son is doing a project on conspiracy theories in his history class. I would like to know what you say as a professional historian about the conspiracy theory that FDR knew in advance about the Pearl Harbor attack. And that's why the three American carriers were not in the harbor that day. In essence, the theory that he used the U.S. Pacific Fleet as bait. What do you think? Okay. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence to this. But, but first, Micah, before I, I get to that, let me, let me give you a good point to use in your history class. Okay, And this is, gets to the root of pretty much every conspiracy theory that's out there. You need to point out to your classmates that the absence of evidence to prove a conspiracy theory is not proof that there's a cover-up going on. <laughs> That is tactic number one for conspiracy theories. Somehow they put out an avid, that an absence of evidence is somehow a sign of hidden evidence. When it's actually easy to see how circular that is. Uh, anybody who has to prove a theory needs to do so with actual evidence and have it verified by professionals who know what that lo- looks like. It's not on you to prove a negative, to prove that something did not happen. You just got to know that from the outset what the evidence is and then hit people with these with common sense well put forward, and with evidence of what did happen. Okay, so the main point out of that, the absence of evidence to prove a conspiracy theory is not proof of a cover-up. Okay, so with that said, let me tell you why I think this idea is bunk. First of all, there's absolutely no evidence of it. And if there needed to be evidence of it, it would have taken literally thousands of people to keep that secret in perpetuity from the day of the Pearl Harbor attack for the rest of time. (laughs) And seeing as... That is a statistical impossibility. There's a really good reason to believe that that did not happen. And also, the theory relies, this conspiracy theory relies entirely on knowing what actually happened in the attack, particularly that the carriers weren't in port, that the oil storage facilities that would feed the entire fleet for a year, all of its repair facilities were not attacked. And so because of that, therefore, FDR could say, oh, what a nice way to get the Japanese into the war that I wanted to have because we didn't really lose anything, quote-unquote, major. Now, first of all, ask any families of the 2,400 people killed at Pearl Harbor whether that was major or not, and they'll say, yes, it was. And FDR was not going to be inclined to take American lives lost lightly. Now, if so so put this in, let's go back in time. If FDR, say he found out in advance that this was happening, first of all, he would know that this was going to potentially put the entire apparatus that he needed to fight this war at risk on the very first day and could cripple the U.S. war effort from the very beginning. So say he did want to get into the war, what would be the point of letting a war start if he were to lose in that very beginning the primary means to fight it? That makes no sense. Second, if he did know in advance, why would he not let Pearl Harbor know? The U.S. public would have been outraged by the attack either way. He would have gotten his declaration of war the next day either way. And by warning them, it would have protected the primary asset he needed to fight the war. It would have saved a lot of American lives and maybe hurt the Japanese badly. So envision, he finds out about this. He gets secret word out to to Pearl Harbor that this is coming. And so the aircraft carriers are out looking for the Japanese fleet. So are the submarines. So are their airplanes. 
and they could perhaps find that Japanese fleet. And even if they don't, if the Japanese attacks the harbor, they're ready. They're able to shoot back. They're able to respond effectively. And if they did find the Japanese carriers off north of Oahu, they could actually sink them right at the beginning of the war. So if FDR knew about this, he could have turned this not only into the war that he thought the United States needed to enter, but he could effectively take a big step to winning it on the very first day. And if you think that is crazy to think about, this is exactly what happened six months later at Midway. When the Americans picked up and figured out where the Japanese were going to go with four carriers this time instead of six, and they surprised the Japanese instead. They were waiting at Midway when the Japanese arrived and blew up four of those carriers. All four of them, by the way, had been at the Pearl Harbor attack. So there was some poetic justice from the point of view of the Americans. So all of this, the entire conspiracy theory that he knew that leaving the fleet undefended would be completely insane, would be completely unnecessary. And besides, he didn't want to just get into the war, right, Micah? He wanted to win it. And what would be the best way to win it? Would be right there at the outset, right? And not by letting the harbor be attacked by surprise. It's just, it goes well beyond logic uh, to try and make that argument, right? It also would have been, of course, political suicide had he known about it and then the American public found out about it. That's the kind of thing that gets you impeached and then brought up on charges. And he was not interested in that either. Okay, so hopefully that helps, Micah. Good luck in your class. Uh, give him H-E double hockey sticks. Okay, question four. This comes from Max in Austin, Texas. Okay. Quote, had the carriers been in Pearl Harbor that day and him been attacked and sunk like the Arizona and the other battleships, what do you think might have happened? Would the U.S. maybe not have fought the war at all? Okay, I love questions like this. Okay, this is where the, the uh, historical fiction alternate history writer in me uh, loves this stuff. But I want to point out right away, it is impossible to say absolutely what would have happened. You can speculate about what could have happened. Uh, and if you do so, it's fun, but it's also useful to project it from a very historically informed point of view. I really tried to do this in my novel, Crello's Inferno, which I'm continuing to push for publication. So I love this stuff. But remember, it is speculation in the end. So let me take some educated runs at what you said. Had those three American carriers been in Pearl Harbor that day and been attacked or sunk or badly damaged, the whole Pearl Harbor attack could have gone on for a full day or two or more, in theory. The Japanese fleet, knowing that they hit those aircraft carriers, which was their number one target, would not have been worried about them roaming around and maybe attacking them, and so could have stayed off the coast of Hawaii, sending wave after wave after wave of planes to Hawaii, and bombed all the things that they didn't in real history. Those oil storage facilities I mentioned, the dry docks, uh, more of the fleet, the submarine uh, base and pens and repair stations, all of those they could have attacked with impunity because there would have been no fleet to resist them. Uh, and that would have changed things extensively. What was left of the Pacific fleet would have had to stay on the West Coast, and it would have changed the picture for what the Japanese would, would have considered them able to do. Is it possible? They could have said, okay, the fleet is entirely gone. Uh, we can actually bring troops back here and occupy Hawaii. It's entirely possible. Could they have sent the Japanese fleet further east and attacked the Panama Canal. Sure, they could have had and crippled not only U.S. commerce, but the ability of the U.S. to bring naval vessels from the Atlantic to the Pacific really easily. They could have done all those things. It could very well have changed the course of the war. Uh, and of course, in the actual attack at Pearl Harbor, the reason why the Japanese commander, 
uh, an admiral named Chuichi Nagumo, had decided not to continue attacking the harbor, despite the fact they hadn't hit the oil stores and all that, was because he didn't know where the carriers were, the American carriers. He was worried that they were going to find him, attack him, and he needed to get the fleet back to Japan safely. So if that question was answered, right, because the carriers were in port, I think the Japanese would have kept going for quite some time. Um, and that would have changed the dynamic of the war. However, I do think the U.S. still would have fought the war. Um, it might have taken a lot longer uh, and certainly would have been a lot more costly and certainly would have looked different in terms of where the first battles on the ground would have been, that type of thing. If the Japanese occupied Hawaii, would the United States have tried to take it back? Who knows? You know, and we'll never know, fortunately. But it is an interesting question. It is vital. Uh, it's a great historical point to make. The fact that the Japanese did not maximize what they could have at the Pearl Harbor attack turned out to be really important for how the war ended up going. Okay. All right. And a final question comes from Carolyn in Los Angeles. Uh, is what she said. Your comments about propaganda and the demonization of Japanese Americans in the week after Pearl Harbor uh, really struck me and got me thinking. How much did anti-Japanese racism play in the conduct of the war itself? And is that a necessary thing for countries to do when they fight against another country anywhere? Demonize them by going to the basest caricatures of them. I think about propaganda about communism in the Cold War or about the North Vietnamese during Vietnam or people in the Middle East after 9-11. What are your thoughts? Well, this, of course, is uh, sticky on some level. It is undeniable that in all those uh, examples you mentioned, that racism plays a part in those things. That is undeniable. Uh, and it is also, from a historical point of view, really difficult to quantify the amount of influence it had on how and why certain actions were taken by governments or that type of thing. Sometimes understanding how it affects an individual decision maker, like a president or a general or something like that, can be a little bit more helpful. But in terms of grand policy and that type of thing, Seeing racism as a part of what shapes a view of a situation uh, can be instructive. And it also is really hard to say, was it 35% this? Was it 60% that? That's tough. Um, for example, was it racism that drove the ideas that the Japanese were too backward, quote unquote, to hit Pearl Harbor or not brave enough to do so? For some people, yes, it would be. For some people, perhaps not. For some people, maybe a little bit of both. Um, as far as demonization of Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor, yes, it led to the internment of over 100,000 Japanese Americans, uh, still one of the most shameful events in U.S. history. And certainly caricatures of the Japanese that are really vile to look at uh, and to see that today were all over newsreels, movies, cartoons, propaganda posters of the time. And of course, this was the case for all the U.S. enemies in World War II. Uh, caricatures of Germans, of Italians were also widespread. Uh, as you can tell, if you watch any old Looney Tunes cartoons or Disney cartoons from the war, you will see that. It cannot be separated, racism, from the discussion. It's also not the only factor to take into consideration when examining the U.S. war effort. And Carolyn, I would recommend, if you want to take a look at this, even though the book is controversial, a book by a uh, historian named John Dower. It's called War Without Mercy, and it's about racism in the United States and how it, uh, how it was projected uh, onto the Japanese people as a whole, whether in the United States or in Japan. I don't think Dower really makes a convincing case in the end for the scope of it in terms of how it influenced everything. But again, it's really hard to quantify. Dower's book is valuable in that it's one of the first books to really put racism into the discussion. 
Uh, but I don't think he has the final word on what motivated uh, everything in Japan or everything in the United States towards the Japanese. Uh, you know, and it's and it's worth noting here as we as we wrap up that uh, you know th- this is the type of thing when nation states go to total war that happens, right? The Germans, the Italians, the Japanese were all caricaturing in the other direction as well, and of course the policies, particularly of Imperial Japan and of Nazi Germany were genocidal by their very nature, right? The decision made, decisions made there. So they were embracing racist ideas, uh, at least among those card-carrying true believers, and policies followed, right? The Japanese were killing many people in China and Indochina and Indonesia and elsewhere during the war in the name of Japanese purity, and the Germans, of course, were doing the same, as is much more well-known in Europe, targeting particularly Jews first, but anybody else the Nazis considered undesirable. Uh, it's worth remembering that while, you know, certainly racism could be found in the United States towards Japan during the Cold War in Vietnam and the post 9-11 world, uh, all of that has to be in there. Uh, and that's the danger of it is that what it can do is it can cloud why countries do what they do, why they believe what they believe and what individuals will do. It blinds us to how other cultures different from ours actually works. And so it gets, you know, it, it forces us, what racism does is we end up just contrasting it with our own uh, negatively. And instead, we don't see the mass amount of agency, sophistication, dynamism uh, in other groups, and therefore cannot necessarily predict effectively how they're going to behave in a war or anything else like that. So with, with these things, why you fight is sort of the big thing. Why countries fight and the motivations of soldiers, the actions of soldiers all those things matter. Just because everybody was fighting the same war in World War II did not mean they were all fighting for the same reasons or with the same motivations. So it's a complicated question, but one that continues to need to be discussed, particularly around that. Okay. All right. Well, this was fun. <laughs> I really appreciate all of you who wrote in and uh, had questions about last week's episode. I love it when people are interested in history and want to talk more about it. And remember that History isn't just about the subject at hand. It's also just as important for what it kicks up in your mind about what might matter, what what it might have in common with, and what it gets you thinking about. And that's the kind of stuff I love to hear about on this show is all about you. So thank you for tuning in for this episode. Please send in further questions about this or anything else. Uh, be sure to call in sometime if you feel like it. And uh, I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Thanks for joining us. And until I see you next week, chins up, everyone. <laughs>